the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Welcome back, folks, to day two of Avalon 2023 with the ADM podcast coverage. We've had a pretty good day, lots of walking, as you might expect, and we've got a couple items to play for you. First one's a bit of a snippet from the folks at Frequentis and their uh, virtual control tower system about their uh, virtual control tower's use in defence and particularly their uh, mobile capability. And then following that, we have a a, uh, discussion with Stephen Over about the F-35 program's involvement of Australian industry and uh, the look to the future and especially a good discussion on the uh, sensor fusion concept and how that actually works. So sit back, enjoy and let's get into it. One of the things we're looking at um, and talking to Defence about is the deployable or the expeditionary aspect of this. We have some contracts with the uh, US Department of Defence for a couple of fixed and a couple of deployable versions with this. So that's a very good um, reference, if you like, that the, the US military put their trust in us to do that. So um, we're having some ongoing discussions with the Air Force about uh, how this might work in a deployable situation. Um, it certainly would bring some benefits to them. Um, I spent some time in the Middle East in the early 2000s when the Air Force was providing uh, tower services in Baghdad. And I think if some of this technology had been around, then it might have might have been used. It, you know, to try and get the controllers out of harm's way, that would have been a good thing, I think. So. Yeah, so they're not so obvious being up the tower, especially some of the uh, temporary ones that are scissor lifts. Yeah. Pretty obvious there. Steve Over, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Well, Grant, it's great to be here. Thank you. Excellent. So we're here to talk about industry involvement in the F-35 program, and Australian industry has been quite involved uh, with the program. I met you many years ago when it was just starting off, and there was um, Miranda, I believe, doing the tales, and there was a little bit from different groups. It's now quite large, uh, lots of SMEs, lots of especially the medium enterprise, and lots of products being produced for more than just the Australian tales. Can you run us through what, how that's developed over time? Yeah, well, Grant, thank, thanks for giving us a chance to talk about that today, uh, because it's something that's been hugely important to us at Lockheed Martin. Yeah, so I'll start strategically, right? So every nation that buys the F-35 has such a a political interest in achieving positive industrial outcomes for their aerospace industry. And so Australia is not unique in that respect, but it became a critical issue as government was trying to get over the decision to commit to to 58 additional F-35s in the 2014 timeframe. And... We made a commitment, and it's a commitment that we stood by, and the commitment was to create positive opportunities for Australian industry. And I, it's great to be here today to kind of see the early realization of that, right? So here at the Avalon Air Show, we have an experience we call the F-35 Expo. It's a rather large tent. Uh, and so today we have about 75 uh, Australian suppliers that are feeding our global supply chain. Of those 75 suppliers, we've created a space where 25 of them are exhibiting their wares. And it's the third time we've done this. When I walk in there, even though I know these companies and I know intellectually the products they're providing, my reaction is, oh my goodness, I can't believe all of this kit comes to us from Australia. Yeah. Uh, now, by accounting standards, 
uh, the government here accounts that we have achieved about $3 billion, Australian, in orders to date from uh, with their industry. Now, that's hugely important. Uh, you know, I can remember as the d- debate was being had mm-hmm. around committing to uh, additional airplanes, uh, the government at that time, I think, was skeptical that we would ever exceed $4 billion over the total life of the program. Yeah. And uh, now that I can look at it today, right? So, so give or take, we've delivered about a thousand F-35s globally. Um, Sixty of them have been delivered to, to Australia, with twelve more to come. And we forecast over the life of the program, as we look out thirty, forty years from now, a number, a total program number that will probably approach at least four thousand. So, just you know, back of the envelope math. We've delivered about a fourth of the total number of F-35s that we expect over the life of the program that we will ultimately deliver. Maybe more than that, but round numbers, about a fourth of that, right? So if we've achieved $3 billion Australian to date at 1,000 airplanes delivered, Australia should expect that that number will probably grow yeah. at least threefold, maybe fourfold from that number over the 30- to 40-year life of the program. Which is fascinating. That's It's not just producing like components for the Australian aircraft, it's producing it for multiple militaries, multiple yeah. different customers, but also the spares as well as just what's going on the actual airframes themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for bringing that point out to your listeners because you're exactly right. Uh, this kit is parts that are going on, not just Australia's airplanes, but this so far this fleet of 1,000 F-35s and likely to grow to something, like I said, approaching 4,000 over the life of the program. That involvement of Australia, uh, even once we get our last, assuming that we finish at 72 and they don't decide with the DSR to get more, uh, Australia's involvement in production of components will continue beyond the um, deliveries of our aircraft. Is, is that correct? Uh, Australia should expect that, yes. Yeah. Now, um, our, our commitment, they, they have to be what we call best value, right? Because, you know, if you think about it in round numbers, about – 75%, give or take, of the price of an F-35 actually comes to us from our supply chain, right? So you'll hear our customers, the U.S. government, putting enormous pressure. You know, the airplane right now, uh, we're, you know, we, we achieved our target uh, for uh, an $80 million F-35A model aircraft uh, in, in, uh, in our production lot 14, airplanes that are being delivered right now. And uh, that was hugely important to us, but more so to our customers, mm-hmm. right? Affordability is key. And because 75% of that cost comes to us with the supply chain, we rely on them to do their part. Yep. But with Australia, I can tell you, they partner with us. This isn't a battle of a prime, you know, uh, 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 leveraging their subcontractors. It's a partnership. And I, I can tell you, as as the prime contractor, if, we, if all of our international suppliers were as good high-quality, on-time deliveries, uh, and, and responsiveness as the Australian supply chain, our job of building these airplanes would be imminently easier. Yep. Uh, when your supply chain's running perfectly, life's so much better. It, it absolutely is, yep. right? So we've just spoken about how the supply chain has grown and developed and how Australia's been contributing and done so well so far. But there's also what's coming up in the future. Uh, this aircraft doesn't stand still. There's rolling upgrades that happen to it. The earlier models get upgraded to features that are now rolling out on the newer models. So are you able to give us some, within 
the limits of uh, general on class, are you able to give us uh, an indication of what's coming up and in, in components in the future? Yes. Well, I'm glad you gave me a chance to address that for your listeners. So first, uh, we're incorporating an upgrade that we call Block 4. So Block 4 will span about a seven or eight year time frame. And it starts with some fairly significant hardware upgrades to our mission systems or, or avionics, as we call it. Uh, uh, this year, we're breaking into production a new computing baseline that will update the main mission computer on the aircraft, the computer that supports the, the cockpit displays, and the aircraft memory system. And that creates a computing infrastructure that then we can leverage with future software upgrades. We're also incorporating a next-gen uh, distributed aperture system, this infrared camera that's positioned around the airplane that allows the pilot to see hemispherically and infrared. And uh, that new sensor, it was it was principally put on the airplane to reduce cost and be uh, more supportable, but it's going to have about a 2x improvement in detection range and detection performance. It's just a benefit of modern technology. What pilot wouldn't love that? <laughs> yeah. And so that, that starts the foundation. Australia's last nine airplanes that are delivered this year will have that hardware baseline. And then incrementally, year over year, there's new software upgrades that will bring new weapons, uh, additional sensor modes and other performance features that will keep this airplane at the cutting edge, state-of-the-art military capability so that Australia, the U.S., and our allies will have the ability to deter aggression from the adversaries that are out there for decades to come. That's fantastic. And will the, the you mentioned that the last few will have that hardware um, capability. Is that plan to be re- regressively applied to the existing fleet when they come in for major upgrades? And things it like absolutely that? is. There's already a plan that we and the F-35 Joint Program Office have worked with the Australian Air Force uh, to factor their airplanes into a, a depot mod program at RAAF Williamtown. And uh, over the coming years, their airplanes all will all be upgraded to this common Block 4 baseline. Okay. So you mentioned uh, two times improvement on the um, electro-optical, primarily the infrared. Are you able to talk about some of the other sensors and things within the limitations, or are we starting to get beyond and... Uh, We'd have to take me outside and kill me. Yeah. This. So what I can say, Grant, is there are other major sensor upgrades that are coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, to keep this airplane at the cutting yep. edge of military capability uh, to deter aggression. Let's touch on sensor fusion. Well, as an engineer, I can tell you sensor fusion is probably the most advanced state-of-the-art feature of the F-35. And I've you know focused on how do you describe to people that aren't fighter pilots, what centrifusion is. And the way I would relate it is you have to contrast it with what a pilot that flies a fourth generation airplane is doing versus a pilot that's flying the F-35. So the pilot that's flying a fourth generation airplane, the Australian Air Force has some of the finest fourth generation airplanes in the world with both classic and super hornets. I guess the classics have been retired. Um, We produce one of the finest fourth generation airplanes also in the world, the F-16 Fighting Falcon. Great fortune airplane, right? And so the pilot, instinctually, he knows how to fly the airplane. He doesn't have to think about how to control and maneuver the aircraft. That's just instinctual for him. And so he has a dedicated display for each and every sensor he has Mm -hmm. in the cockpit. He has a radar and a dedicated display that shows him radar targeting. He'll have electronic warfare and a dedicated display that shows him what his electronic warfare system is seeing. And if he has the luxury of an infrared tracking system or some kind of infrared 
uh, detection system, he may have a third display that shows him what that, that sensor is seeing. And most of his mental capacity is spent trying to glue it in his mind mm-hmm. what each of these three or four displays are showing him into a three-dimensional picture of the battle space. With F-35, we've taken the power of modern computing and almost 9 million lines of software source code, and we've automated that functionality for the pilot. So what he sees when he sits in the cockpit is this large panoramic cockpit display. It's about the size of two large iPads, and he'll typically have half of it dedicated to something we call a tactical situation display. It's this God's eye view of the battle space. And he doesn't worry about individual sensors any longer. He doesn't worry about a radar. He doesn't worry about electronic warfare. He doesn't worry about infrared. It just all logically appears uh, on his cockpit display. And he he never has to worry about it as he's approaching the battle space. He'll set range scales Mm -hmm. and targets just magically appear. Uh, Pilots that, that have transition from fourth generation airplanes into to F-35, they will also tell you one of the things that's the biggest surprise to them, not only is how well sensor fusion tells you where everything is in the battle space, but how well the intrinsic features in the airplane also derive combat ID. Yep. Powerful, powerful performance from, from the airplane, right? So you not only know typically where everything is in the battle space, but for the most part, you know what everything is yeah. as well. Yeah. And so if you're flying the airplane, it's a significant workload reducer. You're not trying to create a mental image of the battle space. You have this very logical view. And so the pilot becomes a tactician. Mm. And what we're seeing as this airplane is being put in the hands of seasoned military pilots is even young first lieutenants, second lieutenants that have just transitioned to the F-35 are able to be battle space commanders. Yeah. Because they have the bandwidth, they have they have the omniscience of what's happening in the battle space. They're making fourth generation airplanes better that are collaborating with them. Yeah. Right? Uh, as we see them go into red flag exercises uh, in uh, the Las Vegas mm-hmm. desert, yep. uh, U.S. Air Force multiple times a year will put on these large force on force combat exercises with an enormous range, uh, air threats. Typically, a hundred, you know, hundred and fifty airplanes in uh, in the the force mix going into combat, and F thirty fives are making F fifteens, F sixteens, F eighteens, other fourth generations better because they see more than those yeah. other airplanes see. Yeah. They can tell them dangers over here, steer clear of this, go here, do mm-hmm. this, and so they're acting as the quarterback in the battle space. That's the phrase I've heard a number of times: is the quarterback, which. For Australians, many of the Australians do understand uh, the American football, American football, so they get the idea of the quarterback calling the shots. Yeah. yeah. Now, I will tell you, we're leveraging this capability, right? So let me give you a preview of coming attractions. There's a feature that we call joint all-domain operations, mm-hmm. right? And that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But I can promise you that there is a future in-state out there where the pilot that's flying an F-35 his contribution to the battle space is not going to be applying kinetic effects mm. or electromagnetic effects against a specific target. His contribution is going to be a very, very accurate set of target coordinates mm. that other sensors or other effectors can then be able to act upon, right? Yep. So Australia has just acquired HIMARS, mm-hmm. right? What a fabulous uh, surface-to-surface missile system, right? We're watching. Uh, it's helping the Ukrainians change the the situation and the the uh, uh, difficult circumstances that they face. So, HIMARS, it, it's a it's a very very long range surface-to-surface missile system. 
wouldn't it be great if you could precisely target it at range? Mm -hmm. Well, if you had an F-35 sitting up at at 30,000 feet, the horizon is about 400 miles away. If you can see it out there, you'll get an accurate set of target coordinates. And through data links, we can feed that into a a weapon system like HIMARS and be able to very precisely target that missile system's capability at range. We've done similar experiences, experiments, excuse me, uh, with U.S. services uh, to show that we can target PAC-3, PAC-2, PAC-3. We've we've done similar experiments with Aegis uh, where F-35s are providing target coordinates to these missile systems to allow them to uh, engage air-breathing threats. They're effectively a mini AWACS. They are. Exactly right. Uh, And so, uh, you know, it's an incredible capability, and this is part of the the features and the capability that we're going to roll out for our customers as part of Block 4. And the thing I like about it is we're taking an already awesome capability and we're we're without selling additional airplanes we're giving our customers an additional force multiplier yep. with uh being able to leverage this capability so we've just discussed the sensor fusion fantastic the whole ability to target missiles and everything from other sources so back in the 2013s 2015s time the discussion was kinematics and uh you know following how everyone progressed but have a number of the uh, fourth-gen pilots who were talking about kinematics realize that now that it's way more than just dogfighting, that this aircraft is able to hold its own but can do so much more if they convert it across? Well, first off, let me, let me just set the record straight. I think as you're going to see from the aerial demonstrations that are performed here at Avalon today, the F-35 is an incredible kinematic machine. Yeah. Uh, I'll know, I think in 2017, when the RAAF brought their F-35s here for the first time from Luke Air Force Base, um, I was shocked, uh, even though I know the capability of the airplane. So we'd all seen the F-22 do its mm. world-class demonstration performance, and it has a renowned capability to accelerate with those extremely powerful Pratt & Whitney engines, right? I mean, it can maneuver and it can do all kinds of things, but one thing the F-22 is known for is its ability to accelerate. Mm-hmm. And so it had come down the flight, long, flight line here at Avalon and uh, done this most impressive acceleration. And then immediately following it, two RAAF F-35s appeared out of the Northeast having flown in from Amberley. And they were on short final, Probably, I'm going to guess, doing about 150 knots or so, gear down, almost a touchdown. And they've been admonished by the air chief, do not, do not, do not do something wild and crazy with the airplanes, I'm told. And so the the, the pilot in command of the aircraft decided to do a, a, a missed, uh, missed approach mm-hmm. landing, yeah. right? So full afterburner, gear up. And by the time he reached the end of the flight line at the other end of the runway, probably what, here at Avalon, 8,000 feet or so, Mm -hmm. the airplane was doing every bit of 500 knots. Uh, Incredible acceleration performance. And, of course, you know, we've seen the 9G maneuver capability in the aerial demonstration here today. It is a beast when it comes to maneuverability. So let me set the record straight on that. Now, I will tell you, however, in the concept of air-to-air dogfighting, if you worry about maneuverability of the airplane, that whole mindset Mm. was around Vietnam-era missiles that had to be targeted within about a 10-degree field of view of the nose of the airplane. Well, today, any fighter pilot will tell you, whether it's you or the adversary, 
you should assume that everyone has off-bore sight missiles and helmet-mounted targeting systems, which means if you can point your head at it and see it, you can kill it and shoot it with an air-to-air missile, regardless of maneuvering geometry of the two airplanes. And so because of that, we know from our modeling and we know from combat engagements that they do at exercises like Red Flag, when any two airplanes, regardless of who they are, get within visual range of each other and are in that turning fight that everybody likes to focus on, your odds of survival in that en- engagement are probably about 50-50. It's coin toss. Ooh. It's a very lethal environment. And it doesn't matter whether you're in an F-22 air dominance fighter or uh, a, a Rafal. I'll pick on the yep. French, right? It doesn't matter which one of those in. Your odds of survival are about 50-50. Yep. Now, the U.S. Air Force has said in their force-on-force exercises at Red Flag that the F-35 has demonstrated a loss exchange ratio. How many adversaries are killed for every F-35 lost up? Greater than 20 to 1, right? How much greater? You'll have to ask them. But greater than 20 to 1. Yeah. Now, what that tells you is... Why would you trade this dominant, overwhelming capability air-to-air against an adversary at distance for a coin toss Mm. uh, within visual range? Yeah, exactly. So pilot that enters into a within visual range fight in an F-35, I I would submit to you his wing commander is going to admonish him greatly (laughs) because he's done something that's, that's not very wise. Yeah. He hasn't used the platform to its full effectiveness. Right. And you've you've potentially put at risk mm. uh, the loss of life of the pilot mm-hmm. and the loss of uh, a very valuable asset. Yeah. So uh, any fighter pilot that would take an F-35 into combat and engage within visual range, um, you, know, you have to question they, his judgment. They've failed their uh, operational conversion unit course. They absolutely <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say about the program while we're here? Excited to be here at Avalon today. (laughs) It is great to be back. Yes, it is. Well, thanks, folks. That's been uh, day two at the uh, Australian International Air Show, a.k.a. Avalon 2023. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with another daily and uh, some more of the content that we've been recording during the show. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back shortly. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a YEFA media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.